Improving health literacy, the ability to understand and act on health information, is key to improving health outcomes and lowering costs. Welcome to the Health Literacy 2.0 podcast, the podcast series from EdLogix where we talk with business, HR, health, and community leaders and explore unique, data-driven, and effective behavior-changing solutions that can help improve people's health literacy and increase their engagement with health and wellness programs. For show notes and bonus resources, visit www.edlogix.com forward slash podcast. Okay, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast on health literacy and workforce health and well-being. I'm Seth Serksner, Chief Health Officer at EdLogix, and I'm so happy to be joined today by Peter Hayes, who is the CEO and President of the Healthcare Purchasing Alliance of Maine. I've known Peter, gosh, we will go back more than 20 years to your Hannaford days, but we've kind of stayed in touch. I'm pretty familiar with your background, Peter, but if you could just give the audience a little background update and kind of your career path and kind of where you have landed in your current role, that would be really helpful. Thank you, Seth. Yeah, my name's Peter Hayes, and actually I'm probably a banner child for a frustrated liberal arts major. I went to a small local school in Maine. I was a geology economics major, left there and went to a family business. Then I was in public accounting for several years. Then spent about 25 years in a supermarket chain, half the time in accounting finance mergers. And then I got tapped on the shoulder to do HR. So I've been really, as Seth said at the top, been really passionate and engaged in sort of the healthcare conversation for 30 plus years. I'm the current CEO and president of something called the Healthcare Purchaser Alliance of Maine. But again, we've really been an organization that's been around 30 years. Its original name was the Maine Health Management Coalition. And it really was a bunch of all stakeholders in the state coming together and really focusing on how can we make healthcare a little bit better, a little bit safer, and more affordable for all of us. And we really were trying to work on, there's lots of areas, all the stakeholders where we may not have agreed, but we certainly found the areas that we could. So one of the things we started off looking at is you know, how do we look at patient safety? Our hospitals in Maine at that point had some of the most unsafe hospitals in the country. I was on the leapfrog board, the state of Maine itself, and I was the director of benefits at a supermarket chain. We ended up reducing deductibles and co-pays if individuals went to the safer hospitals by the leapfrog rating. And last year, Maine accepted the award for the safest hospitals in the country for the past decade. So that's been sort of the heritage of the organization I'm at now. And it's been sort of, you know, that pathway that I've engaged in really trying to find ways that we can really increase the value of healthcare. I served on two healthcare reform commissions in Maine. I've been on the board and advisory panels of some of the first, you know, consumer driven plans and express scripts for PBMs and others. So I'm glad to be joining the conversation and I've got a lot of battle wounds to share along the way. So hopefully we'll get into some of that conversation as we progress. Yeah, so great. And thank you for kind of reminding me of all that. I've always been impressed that your focus, at least from my perspective, has been this kind of cost and quality approach. So while certainly kind of wellness and population health management has been part of that, I think sometimes there is a frustration or a disconnect that there's a whole healthcare system we need to connect to and connect people to. And in fact, some people are like, 
as an employer, you're being really separate from the health system itself. And a lot of your work, it seems to me, has been really trying to help the healthcare system and help people engage in this very quality way. So what are you working on these days? What are the big focuses of the Alliance right now? Yeah, I mean, that's a great segue. I mean, I think the focus has always been, and sort of our mantra always was, how do we just make sure people get the right care? Because about 50% of the time, it's not. How do we make sure they go to the right place? Because depending on what your health condition is, it really does matter where you go. And then the last piece of that sort of rubric is going back to Yuli Reinhardt in the 70s. It's the price is stupid. How do we make sure if people are getting right care, right place, that we're also getting the right price? So that's really been the focus. I described earlier that we were an alliance or we were called the Main Health Management Coalition. At that point, we had everybody under the tent. We had the hospitals and health plans and providers and businesses, both public and private. And we could work on the quality initiative. But once we started to look at the cost side of it, we have become strictly a purchasing alliance. And what we're looking for are things in the marketplace that are really disruptive, innovative, things that a lot of the entrenched stakeholders really aren't that interested in promoting. And we're trying to find those niches. We've gone down several different pathways. I'm sure all of you are very aware of prescription drug costs and what has happened. We, early on, just about the fourth year, we introduced a transparent PBM. It was actually saving our members 50 cents on the dollar. So we really found a better way that patients could get the same drugs, but a dramatically different cost. When I was in that role in the supermarket chain, we took a look at, we had a hip replacement in the current model. It cost us a million dollars as an entity. It failed those three tenets of right care because it really was an older individual that was not a good candidate for a replacement in the first place went to a hospital that had the highest infection rate in the state at the highest prices. It failed two yeah, times. That's all the wrong things, exactly. All the wrong things. I asked if there's anything we could do together and the hospitals really weren't you know, willing to kind of look at things differently. I spent some time with our partner, health plan partner at that time, touring sort of throughout Europe and Singapore. We found in Singapore at that point in time when hips and knees were 75,000 here, they would do it for 10000 with a one-year warranty. We put a benefit design in place at that point saying if our folks wanted to go to Singapore, we'd pay 100% in travel cost. I got calls from hospitals the next day around the country, including one in Maine, that said, we'll do it too. And so those are the types of things we're finding. Fast forward, we do have Carum Health, the Center of Excellence programs. We've done that. We've done the prescription drug. The most recent thing we're really involved in, and I'd really encourage everybody to take a look, there's a SAGE transparency tool. You can look up any hospital in the country. You can see what we are paying in the commercial and individual market, what they're charging. You can see what they're breaking even is. You can see their margins. We're trying to find a way that how do we make sure hospital pricing is fair and reasonable the average across the country is we're paying about 275% of Medicare. So if it costs $10,000 for a procedure, all of us are paying closer to 27000 for that procedure. If we got to 200% of Medicare, there'd be a 40% savings. And a lot of courts are now starting to say, and for all of you, there's planned fiduciary accountability now that we need to make sure if we're using benefit dollars, we're paying fair and reasonable prices. So we have really started to engage health systems in conversations around 
what is a fair and reasonable price for our community? How do we make sure you keep your doors open to do the right things? And how do we make sure we're paying the professionals appropriately? And how do we make sure we take care of the rural centers? And that's becoming a really important conversation around the country right now. So interesting. Also, does that extend to, you know, mental health, behavioral health is so important these days, always has been, but it's risen to the top, people's awareness. Are you able to do anything in that space as well? Especially some of the inpatient facilities have been, you know, really expensive and some of the rehab and all the rest. I mean, that's a really interesting and a really complex problem. I mean, there have been some silver linings in COVID. One of the silver linings in COVID is there really was a lot of use of virtual care during COVID, especially for primary care, but more importantly for mental health. In Maine, well, there's a huge need for behavioral health services, and there's a real access issue. We do not have enough mental health providers in Maine. And my son had a pretty critical issue. He should have gotten immediate help. It was almost a four-month wait. Right. We don't have the providers. We don't have the beds. So our members are much less worried about costs and much more worried about access. Yeah, okay. But now they're saying with virtual health and we're doing this, and actually we have found a partner that for seasonal workers and more and more folks are, that you can get healthcare coverage for $30 a month that's transportable, that's unlimited virtual primary care, unlimited virtual mental health. So we are trying to deal with some of those access and quality issues. So interesting, right? So technology may help us in some ways. So these virtual primary care, some would say, that's fine. I just need to have a primary care doc that I can check in with and all the rest. And then if they really need to see me physically, that's something separate. But what's your take on these virtual networks that are starting to pop up? So again, when I go back to COVID, pre-COVID, I think there was a real patient bias that telephone or virtual health just wasn't the same as face-to-face. -face. Right. Frankly, I think a lot of the health professionals also resisted virtual health. And it is important that that patient-client relationship, patient-doctor relationship is really important. During COVID, though, when a lot of people started getting the mental health, they realized mental health service or primary care, that they didn't have to go out in the middle of a blizzard to get care. They could do it from home. Actually, patients started to say, we kind of like this. And as far as quality, especially, which the big pressure point for us is mental health, there have been clinical studies that show that the clinical effectiveness of virtual mental health versus in-person mental health, really, they're on par for quality. So, you know, it all depends on the vendor. I think there's a way you can deliver high quality, more consistent care virtually. And the vendor that I talked about earlier, and during COVID, the, the ratio they determined is about 80% of specialty care and virtual and primary care can be done virtually. But 20%, you really do need the hands-on, face-to-face. I've got two friends that are really, you know, later in their careers as primary care docs. They fiercely resisted virtual health. They were forced to participate as professionals. And they've actually come around. They said they actually liked it. They had a better quality of life because they, you know, didn't have to be in the office on some of those blizzard days. They could do it virtually. They could do it from home. But what they did say was really interesting. They said that it doesn't work well for a new patient because you don't know that patient. You haven't developed a relationship. They were much more comfortable when you could develop that relationship and then do it virtually. So I think there's a way we can do it. 
high quality, improve access, higher patient status, a better patient experience. And I think that is the future. Yeah. So interesting. I've also heard those anecdotes around behavioral health where less missed visits too on the patient side, right? And that's better for everybody too, that, you know, yeah, I'm not late or missing visits. So really interesting. So if I'm an employer and I appreciate all this cost stuff, you know, I'm self-insured, I've got my health plan, my, you know, kind of ASO approach, is the idea that I'm going to push them or am I going to do some direct contracting or how do I go about this, you know, kind of price and cost quality issue that you're starting to talk about to kind of negotiate closer to what might be fair for everybody? I think it's all the above. I mean, I think certainly there are many more employers that are interested in direct contracts going directly to, you know, the providers to do some of this stuff. I think there's been a lot of literature as these health systems have consolidated and merged and they have dominant market shares. It is hard to negotiate with them. The insurance plans themselves are having problems contracting. So I think as it relates to primary care, as it relates to some of these other things, and a lot of these entities have very cumbersome sort of systems that have been in place, legacy systems that aren't very flexible. They have problems accommodating other payment models other than fee for service and other things. But what I see is you're having some real startup models like primary care. And the problem becomes a lot of your established providers want to make the same revenue they've always made. If they reduce care, it goes to their bottom line. Some of these startups that are coming in are willing to take risks. They're willing to say, hey, look, we'll capitate the risk. We'll capitate and take risks that we will guarantee your total cost of care. Right. Different, which is becoming an attractive model. You improve access, you improve patient experience, and you have some controls. What we have found, there's a really good entity catalyst for payment reform that's always been a proponent that market systems will work. Recently, they just had an Arnold Foundation grant, and they have written a paper, which I think is revolutionary. I mean, they're basically saying health plans, health systems have gotten too big to fail, that the only way to really get at the affordability side is going to be through regulation. And eight or nine states are starting to put, you know, global caps on budget, growth caps. Yeah. I think regulators are going to take an increasingly larger role in sort of reining in some of the costs. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. You and I have also been talking about this topic of health literacy. And I've been a huge advocate of this throughout my career. I started in public health and patient education. And then as I moved through this area and became into population health, and we see all these advocacy services, I was always a little curious as to why we didn't spend more time in what I'd be calling health literacy 2.0, using behavioral science with data and multimedia, videos, everybody's learning by YouTube these days, all those things. How can we haven't really advanced that piece of the equation when we know really one out of 10 people are, quote, health literate or competent in that area and that the outcomes are so direct when people are more informed, able to make better decisions. All the things you're talking about, frankly, with right place, right time. I mean, You have to have some background and some literacy in the system to be able to do that. What I'm finding is that many employers say, I just don't quite know where it fits in my 
ecosystem and how I do it. And isn't that somebody else's responsibility? What's your take on this? I know we've been talking about you're an advocate of this. Talk a little bit about your thoughts on health literacy and where it might fit. Yeah, as you probably sense by this point, anytime you ask a question, it's, it never seems to be a direct, quick answer. You know, I think it's a really complex issue. I mean, I really think purchasers, I would say there's been sort of waves of sort of enlightenment and engagement types of things. I think early on, a lot of employers were really, really interested in health promotion, health literacy, and those types of things. There were a lot of sort of vendors that were in the space, partners that are in the space that were you know, promising the moon, the sun, the stars, you know, employers invested. And then they were really got discouraged because there was pretty low participation rates. There was pretty low engagement rates in not very good ways to measure what type of impact you were having. So I think employers kind of pull back a little bit from that. I am a great example. You know, I've done, as I said at the top, I've done healthcare for 30 years. I thought I was a really engaged patient and I really knew all this stuff. In full disclosure, I have high blood pressure and I have high cholesterol, you know, and I'm taking some medication. So I thought that was a clean bill of health and all I needed to do was take my pill and I didn't yeah, need sure. to make other changes. I did try the specific health literacy tool here. And I do have back pain. I have those other things. I thought I knew everything. I got engaged that the model uses the gamification. And so I got really involved. It really roped me in the past where I never paid attention. And, you know, my arrogance was I knew everything. Then I realized I knew very little about blood pressure. And for me, it remarkably changed me. So I think the technology and the theory behind it has come a long way. And I think it is time again that as we start, especially out of COVID and shrinking workforces, employers are really trying to find ways that they can engage their members in the way the members want to be engaged. I was amazed at how much I didn't know. And I'm probably typical of that most Americans. Yeah. So, you know, I guess the question is for me, what happens is, is people say, well, I know if I have a diabetes program or point solution, right? Employers have a lot of point solutions these days. But in my view, health literacy is almost a horizontal and it goes across all these different things. And we're trying to get people to understand where it might fit. And you're looking at the alliances, maybe kind of promoting this in some way as well. Where do you think it will fit in terms of how they explain where health literacy would fit in kind of helping employees and their families have that right time, right place approach. So going back and sort of, you know, my journey through all of this, I do think healthcare, I think it's going to have to become a community almost focus. And I know some of your models are trying to engage mm -hmm. the community. Yes, absolutely. I do remember, you know, again, going back, I was, you know, the director of benefits at a supermarket chain. We were trying to get our members engaged around diabetes and other things. What we ended up doing as a supermarket chain is we ended up rating all the food products in the store with stars, one star being healthier. Yes. And the outcome of that was 70% of the product in supermarkets are not healthy. And, you know, we started putting that out there and it was a remarkable, we actually started getting calls from physicians as a supermarket chain saying, thank you. You know, we've been trying to get the diabetic patient or the cardiac patient to change their diet. And, you know, we've done focus groups and most patients have said, well, my eyesight's failing. I can't read the labels anyway. And I don't know what 
you know, all the terminology is. And it was something simple of just putting stars on the product. And we started changing behaviors. It was the community. It wasn't the employer telling them what to do. It was more of how do we engage as a community? And I think that's the power of health literacy. And it connects the dots where, you know, they're saying the social determinants of health now is probably more predictive of the diet, the nutrition, your weight, your living conditions. It's a way that we can fuel and get all of us on the same page as a community to really champion the things that are going to drive what we want in our communities for health. Yeah, that's a great example. And I do see health literacy as a big piece of health equity, basically. How can you have equal access to things if you don't have an informed ability and skills and confidence to navigate that? And on the other side, just like you said, let's just make it easy for people. There's a star. Go to the start. Thanks, right? Yeah. So, fantastic. Well, so Peter, this has been really interesting, and I suspect we're going to get some feedback on this, which will be fun. You're kind of entering a new phase of your career, but as you've mentioned, you've kind of had this long career, really nice arc, really, I think, tried to make some changes in the system, especially as you've mentioned around cost and transparency and creating a design that supports that. Any couple words to the wise, to people out there listening as they're trying to figure out how they address their populations? Yeah, again, really great questions. You know, we've been trying to do that for a long, long time. I know. And what's the Winston Churchill quote? Rely on the Americans to try the same thing over and over and over again, expecting a different outcome. I think we're at this fascinating crossover point. And I am more optimistic that we will see more change in our healthcare delivery system in the next 18 to 24 months than we've seen in decades. And it's all because now, and this will really bring people to tears of boredom, but you know, recently a federal law was passed, Consolidated Appropriations Act, which all of a sudden says now the CEOs, the CFOs, the board of directors have total fiduciary responsibility to make sure that healthcare dollars that they're spending on behalf of their employees are doing the right things and they're being used to create health. Right. And the dollars, they have to be prudent. They have to be responsible. All of a sudden, you have where the C-suite hasn't been all that interested in healthcare because that's not their core business. Right. They're going to start really looking at, okay, are the things that we're spending dollars on consulting dollars or those point solutions you talked about? Or in our state, a really great example is you can get a knee replaced in Maine for $20,000 at a high quality hospital at a very low quality hospital that's 70000 What the law now says is they are personally accountable for that difference of $50,000 they have to pay it back to the plan because it's not being used for the exclusive benefit of the employees. And so I think you're going to have much more engagement from the C-suite because employers have really not been at the table. And I think that's going to bring them back to the table. I think the costs have become an unsustainable place. And the average family coverage now is over $30,000 a year. So I think, you know, we've tried everything else. We've tried HMOs. We've tried ACOs. I think we are now fundamentally going to have some real changes that will focus on health and not really sickness. So that's going to be so interesting. Thank you for that. So everyone who's kind of listening to this, if you weren't aware, now you're aware. And if you are aware, but your C-suite is not aware, this could give you some leverage, some 
opportunities to really get much more strategic and be higher on the agenda. And frankly, we have to talk about these issues. So fantastic. Well, Peter, thank you so much. Appreciate it. It's been a great conversation. And I wish you well in the next phase of your career path. I know you will continue to shake it up for us. So thanks again for your time today. Thanks for the opportunity and thanks for doing this and getting the word out for all of us. All right. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us today on the Health Literacy 2.0 podcast, the podcast series from EdLogix, where we talk with business, HR, health, and community leaders and explore unique, data-driven, and effective behavior-changing solutions that can help improve people's health literacy and increase their engagement with health and wellness programs. Remember, for show notes and bonus resources, visit www.edlogix.com forward slash podcast. We'd love it if you subscribe and share the show with your colleagues. Thanks and see you soon.